series that we've been uh, going through on Wednesday nights. Uh, I entitled the series uh, some time ago when we started God's Prevailing Work, His Church Through the Centuries. And so we've been looking at the uh, heritage that we are blessed with, and so wanted to continue that on tonight. We've worked our way across the uh, ages until we came to the point where uh, we saw our Baptist forebearers uh, coming across the pond and into America in the 1600s. We began to see the first Baptist people from uh, principally from England coming over, some from other areas in Europe, Holland and uh, the Netherlands, uh, and so uh, coming over to the States uh, for the same reasons that uh, other religious groups had come, in many cases, for the uh, opportunity to exercise uh, our faith in the manner that we believe that God would have us to. And so we looked last time into um, the first uh, Baptist churches that were actually established in America and the uh, situation with Rhode Island. It was, uh, uh, it was principles of Scripture, uh, such as we talked about that last time, such as soul liberty and uh, the liberty of conscience and the uh, biblical principle of the separation of church and state. We saw that those biblical principles were the driving force uh, that brought about the Baptist influences in the early history of our nation's foundations. Um, and so um, we wanted to pursue that a little bit uh, as, we, uh, as we go on into the lesson and the message today. Uh, there were, as we mentioned last week, men like Roger Williams and John Clark, uh, who were the founders of Rhode Island, that understood there was a purpose in government. They weren't, they weren't, uh, it wasn't in their mind to, uh, to rebel against government, to overthrow government, to have an anarchist point of view at all. They understood the purposes of government because the scripture makes it clear that God has ordained government. I lost my, my thing here. Um, goes okay see if that'll work does that work there we go um, so the scripture made it uh, clear that God has ordained government and they understood this they deduced the purpose of government from the scriptures let's take a look at one of the passages that uh, they would have uh, uh, they would have been very familiar with would be the book of Romans and look at chapter 13 Romans chapter 13 and uh, take a look there for um, a minute here as we get started tonight. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 and following. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. And the powers that are ordained, uh, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Um, do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain." He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doth evil. Wherefore, we must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually on this very thing. 
Render, therefore, unto all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth uh, hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. There be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in the saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is a fulfilling of the law. A number of wonderful principles in there concerning human government. And it is uh, obvious that our forebearers, our Baptist forebears, got that. They understood it. They understood it better than anybody else did, uh, better than any of the other groups did. They, they got this thing. Um, it was revolutionary in that day to even, to even think of the concept of self-government, of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It was a foreign concept. It was completely unknown uh, in, in Europe and England. It was not something that uh, people had even considered. Uh, but it is a biblical principle. And because our Baptist forebears were people of the book, people of the word, uh, they saw it before the others did. And you understand as the Episcopalian church came over uh, from England and established the, uh, you know, um, uh, the churches that were connected, that had the roots in the Church of England, you can understand that their, uh, their position was going to be more uh, oriented toward the traditions of the church, more so than what saith the Scripture. You can, you can understand that. You can see that from Catholicism, those, uh, those colonies that uh, were principally uh, um, influenced by Catholicism and the state church ideal there, they... Are not, they're not going to be people of the book. They're not going to be people of the word. So the ones that are coming over that uh, are, say, Puritan or from Protestant groups, they're going to be more concerned about what thus saith the Lord. But above all the others, it's going to be the Baptist people that have the highest regard for the scriptures over any tradition or any long-held point of view in whatever the church was. So all these other groups had the problem had the issue, had the question, had the error of a connection between the state and the church. They all had that problem. And so uh, this concept of, uh, of religious liberty and soul freedom and the liberty to express your, your, uh, your faith in whatever manner that your conscience guided you was something we looked at last week. I looked at all the scriptures that spoke of, um, you know, the answer of a good conscience toward God and the conscience, the place of the conscience and answering to God rather than to government. Uh, and so we saw all of that. And these people did too. They saw in government the value of government. They saw that God had ordained the authority of government. They understood that. They saw that God had put government for there to be order. Let everything be done decently and in order. They knew those passages of Scripture and they understood from passages like we've read and many, many others that government has a function of maintaining order in a society. They got that. They understood that uh, according to passages like this, the purpose, the high purpose of government was to praise the good and to punish the evil. That's the purpose of government, to promote good and punish evil. Uh, they got that. They understood that a governing body was called of God and would answer to God for the purpose of the protection of its people. And so those things were all uh, ordained of God as, as uh, a government, 
as what a government should be doing, you know. And so, so they, as they came to the country, none of these groups were saying, we want to throw off government. We don't want government. They were simply saying, we want the opportunity to worship God according to the dictates of our heart, our conscience, our minds. And so uh, many of them, when they got over, were okay with it as long as you agreed with them. <laughs> but if you didn't agree with them, they weren't okay with it anymore. <laughs> so the Protestant groups, the Catholic groups, the Episcopalian groups uh, were were found to become enemies of Baptists or they viewed Baptists as enemies of their point of view uh, because of Baptist convictions. So uh, we understand that the, the Bible uh, taught also, and they got this too, that Though God has ordained governmental authority in our lives, He's also told us that there is a higher authority than government. And that authority we answer to, you know, even above the government. So they got that as well. They understood that when the government contravenes, when the command of government contravenes the command of God, the choice is easy. You follow the command of God and disregard the command of government. The choice is easy. They understood that as well. They uh, drew that uh, principle from passages like uh, Peter's answer when uh, called on by the governing council, which was a religious, it was a state, it was a state, a church state government. In this case, the, the Jewish state, you know, was a religious leader, a religious political leadership that said, we do not want you preaching in the name of this Jesus anymore. And Peter's answer was Acts 5 and 29, wasn't it? We ought to obey God rather than men. So there's one you're going to obey and there's one you're not going to obey. And the one you're not going to obey is the government, when the government tells you not to obey God. So, so uh, the choice is always simple. And it was simple for these early foundational Baptist people as well. Dr. John Clark had uh, obtained that charter for Rhode Island took him 12 years working in England. He had to leave his pastorate there in, in, um, uh, in Providence, in, in uh, Newport. And um, he had to leave his ministry there, go to England. He spent 12 years there working with the authorities and the powers that be there to finally get a charter for the, the uh, state, uh, the colony of Rhode Island. Now, when he chartered it, it was with all respect to the king and the king's authority and the, their subjugation, or their, their, um, their um, obligation to the nation of England and so forth. It was all, it's all in the charter. You know, he wasn't saying we want to be, we want to have, uh, we want to rebel against England. That, that isn't in the charter. Uh, in fact, they wanted the king to approve it and sign it. And, and indeed, he did, King Charles II was the king that he was working with this, this, during this 12-year period of time to obtain this uh, charter for Rhode Island. But as Dr. John Clark was a Bible-believing Baptist and working with Roger Williams, who was at, the, at least at the time uh, a Baptist, he, his, his Baptist principles weren't quite as well um, settled as Dr. John Clark's were. But uh, he and, he and uh, Clark did work together on this, uh, on this opportunity to get, to get this uh, charter for uh, Rhode Island and, and uh, to get the crown of England to grant them full religious and political freedom uh, for Rhode Island. And so um, I want to read you, I looked up the, in the encyclopedia um, exactly to, to make sure I wasn't uh, overstepping, but I want to read it to you here. Um, the... 
Rhode Island Royal Charter provided royal recognition to the colony of Rhode Island, the Providence Plantations, and was approved by England's King Charles II in July of 1663. It outlined many freedoms for the inhabitants of Rhode Island and was the guiding document of the colony's government and later of the state for a period of over 180 years. No other uh, covenant, no other constitution, no other charter lasted anywhere near that long. And so uh, the charter contains unique provisions. It uh, made it significantly different from all the other charters of the other colonies. It gave the colonists freedom to elect their own governor, to write their own laws within broad guidelines, and it also stipulated that no person residing in Rhode Island could be molested. This is a, a quote from it. Could, no person living within Rhode Island could be molested, punished, disquieted, or called in question for any differences in opinion in matters of religion. It was revolutionary. It was the first one, the first time anyone had even considered such a prospect of, uh, of having in the charter of the colony the fact that no one could be uh, molested in matters of religion. So uh, it was religious freedom. The first document that guaranteed religious freedom in America was a Baptist document, and it was written by Baptist people. It is the great heritage that Baptists have given to the country. The, uh, the, the freedom, the government, the freedoms that we have in our government as compared to other governments in the world, is, it's like night and day, even yet today with all the encroachments that have occurred since that time. But, uh, uh, but that was written right into the charter. And the charter wasn't replaced until 1843. It served nearly, nearly two centuries as the guiding force of the colony and then of the state of Rhode Island and the Providence plantations for all that time. One historian, a well-known man, you'll probably recognize his name if you're a student of history, would be Thomas Bicknell. He described this document, this charter, as the grandest instrument of human liberty ever constructed. And so uh, it was really this that was the foundation of the, uh, of the uh, Constitution of our United States and the uh, Articles uh, the um, the Bill of Rights. It was really foundational. These principles were uh, developed really by your Baptist forebears, and we have the Lord to thank for our heritage that we enjoy in that. Um, writer and Pastor Robert Sargent wrote this. He said, "There's no record um, of any Baptist being put to death in America for his faith, but many were imprisoned and whipped and fined and banished." or had their property confiscated. So uh, simply because Rhode Island had been granted this charter, and if you lived in Rhode Island, you had religious freedom, you had the issue of going anywhere outside of Rhode Island, any of the other colonies, and being faced with severe, sometimes, persecution. Every one of the other colonies had a different point of view. Every one of the other colonies had a church-state setup of some sort. Uh, and so um, you, you really took matters seriously if you wanted to travel outside of Rhode Island as a Baptist from Rhode Island. And uh, if you said anything about your faith, if you did not attend the compulsory services of the other churches in the other states, uh, you were putting yourself in a, a world of hurt. So, so, and by the way, the, uh, if you read the charter, it's quite lengthy and it's a rather lugubrious read. Uh, but if you read the charter all the way through, 
you will find that uh, a number of other things uh, are pointed out among them. The fact that anybody of any, uh, of any position, religiously or politically, was given absolute freedom to travel through Rhode Island without any fear of being accosted, arrested, or caused to uh, be forced to you know, adopt Baptist principles or anything like that. And that's something that we've, um, we've held dear through the ages. Uh, other groups under, uh, you know, under coercion have forced people into uh, acceptance of their religious positions and many, many other groups. But that's never been, uh, that's never been the case with, uh, with Bible-believing Baptist people, even when, they had, even when they were in the place where they could have ex- exercised power in, and coercion in those kinds of areas. They have never, that has never been a practice of Bible-believing Baptists, and thank God for that. That is a, another, one of our, another part of our heritage. Uh, some of the other things in the charter uh, declared that, the, that if lands were to be uh, taken from the Indians, they, sh- they couldn't be taken. They had to be bought. They had to arrange to, uh, an agreement as to price, and they had to pay the, uh, the fa- a fair price for any land that was uh, taken from the native, or that was bought from the native Indians. And so... Of course, Rhode Island got along well with the tribal peoples in that area because they paid for what they got, and uh, that was unique to Rhode Island as well. None of the other, all the other charters and the other um, groups had the the European point of view was the philosophy was it's the king's land and we came and we conquered it and it's now the king's and too bad for you. So. Uh, that was, you know, that was the philosophy of everybody. That was everyone else's point of view is, you know, take it by force and power and we, we owe nothing to the native peoples. So uh, contrary to that was the, was the, uh, the Baptist uh, charter. So you have, uh, you have these early Baptists getting in and then it begins to spread. The first three Baptist churches were found in Rhode Island. They were First Baptist Church in Newport, First Baptist Church in uh, Providence and Second Baptist Church in Newport, all established within a few years of each other, uh, there in in uh, Rhode Island. Uh, but uh, the the Puritans, who were uh, you know prominent in many in many areas, who were prominent in in Massachusetts among others, the Puritans uh, were connected. Their point of view of the church was they called it the Congregational Church uh, because they were separatists and they were persecuted in England. And they came to the states, and they d- decided upon a congregational form of government, and they called their churches congregational. They called their uh, buildings meeting houses, uh, and um, they had many notable many things that Baptists would agree with in principle and in holiness and in uh, convictions about Scripture and so forth. They had many areas where we agreed, but uh, the Puritans continued to practice these thoroughly unscriptural. Uh, infant baptism, and they also uh, taught that there was uh, sacerdotal power in the in the sacraments, in baptism and in uh, the uh, communion. So they taught that there was sacramental uh, saving grace. They were they were other graces that God gave in those um, in the sacraments. Of course, that's not a biblical principle. Once again. And if you opposed infant baptism, if you opposed the point of view that there was saving power in the sacraments of baptism and, and um, the communion, then you were the enemy of the Congregational Church there and the Puritans. And so, of course, 
the Baptists were not quiet about that. They preached against that. <laughs> they were very, very uh, vocal about their opposition to unscriptural practices such as that. And one of the reasons they were very vocal is because in Massachusetts and in the other colonies, you've, you were taxed and your taxes went to pay the clergy of these groups and you were compelled to go to church on Sunday. You were compelled to be in the congregational church, not to go to any church, not to go to the church of your choice, as Billy Graham used to say, uh, but to go to the congregational church and pay, your taxes were to pay for the clergy and you were to uh, have your infant baptized when the infant was born. It wasn't... Uh, by choice, it was compulsory, as it was in, you know, in Europe. And so these things were, of course, preached against very boldly by the few Baptists that were you know, coming from, over from England and the ones that had established Baptist principles in America. These, uh, these things were being, were being uh, preached against very vocally. Uh, a noted historian by the name of H. Leon Macbeth wrote that Fines were often paid uh, by Puritan clergy to get Baptists out of jail because the Baptists were often preaching to larger crowds gathered around the outside of their jail windows than were in the congregational church. So, so that wasn't exciting for the, for the clergy there. And so they would secretly pay the fines of some of these Baptist preachers that got thrown in jail for their preaching and uh, just, to, just to keep them from having the crowds they were having. Uh, in July of uh, 1651, John Clark and John, Rand, uh, John Crandall and a guy named Obadiah Holmes, they were asked to come to Lynn, Massachusetts. Now, that's not too far. It's about two and a half hours if you have a car. It's about two and a half hours from, uh, from where they were in Rhode Island to Lynn, Massachusetts. But Lynn, Massachusetts is only 10 miles from Boston, which is the hotbed of uh, this, uh, this anti-Baptist activity. Uh, it's is Boston, you know, uh, the the harbor there in Boston, and everybody arriving comes into Boston there, and the Baptists that come in, you know, uh, try to have organized worship services there in Boston, and they're run out of town, you know, because of the principles that are so contrary to the congregational mindset and the Puritan mindset there in Boston. So these three guys are in Rhode Island. Everything's fine, going well for them. But they have a former member that's in Lynn, uh, Massachusetts, that's elderly, now blind, and is unable to get uh, to... They, he has no place to worship because he's, he's in this area where there, are no, there is no Baptist church at all. So he asked, the, he asked uh, Pastor Clark if he could come, you know, sometime and just uh, visit with them and if they could just have, a, you know, like a service in his home. Just... Uh, uh, as he's getting up in years and he doesn't know how much longer he's got left, that kind of thing. So they agreed uh, to go down, travel down there to Lynn, Massachusetts. They got there on a Saturday night. They fellowshiped together. And uh, then Sunday they had a quiet service in his home. But the uh, congregationalists got wind of this and they sent constables over and broke up the service, took uh, the three men, Obadiah Holmes and uh, John Crandall and, and uh, John Clark, took all three of them over to, uh, to um, arrest them and and uh, charge them uh, formally, formally charge them with various charges. And uh, then uh, they forced them to come over to the afternoon service of the congregational church there. And they forced them to come in and sit down and, and uh, participate in the congregational service. But uh, they were so upset at being forced to do that, they kept their hats on. So they knocked their hats off and it was a bad scene. Uh, anyway, so they... 
they got uh, uh, they did get charged with uh, various um, crimes. Uh, the these, uh, the congregational church there in Lynn was already upset with Witter because Witter had openly proclaimed that their position on infant baptism was of the devil. So uh, uh, they, they didn't have too much love for, for Witter anyway. And so he, he, because he was forced to be at that church because he lived there and it was compulsory, uh, he simply spoke while he was there against it and caused a lot of uh, headaches for them. And so they knew all about that, and and um, uh, and so um, when um, Holmes and Clark and Crandall were charged, they were charged with denying infant baptism and disturbing public worship. So that's the legal charge against them: you're denying infant baptism and you're disturbing public worship. They were sentenced to pay some very significant fines or to be whipped publicly, and so. Clark was uh, up to the whipping post when somebody slipped in and paid his fine. He didn't know who it was, but someone paid his fine, and he was released. And then uh, Crandall was released on bail. But Obadiah Holmes was, uh, was not, well, no, first of all, nobody offered to pay his fine. And uh, secondly, he refused to pay it himself because of principle. And so he was left in jail from July, August, and then September, he was finally scheduled to be scourged, and uh, he was to be scourged with uh, 30 lashes with a three-corded whip, and uh, the, the three-corded whips, the, the leather was hardened on them, and it was a long strap of leather, three of them, three cords with knots in the end usually, um, and uh, they would, the, 40 lashes was considered a death sentence. Nobody could live through 40 lashes because of the excessive loss of blood. Uh, that was produced by uh, that, such a furious, you know, punishment as that. So, thirty lashes and uh, well laid on was the was the uh, sentence. Thirty lashes, well laid on, um, and they did. They uh, tied him to the whipping post. They stripped him to the waist and and uh, put thirty lashes onto him. Uh, the he said in his testimony, as he wrote about it afterwards, the the individual that was administering the whipping, the beating was so furious about it that three times he stopped and spit in his hands, rubbed them together so he could get a better double grip on the handle of the whip uh, as he whipped him the 30 lashes. And so um, I want to just give you something that you can take home with you that uh, is it's actually, his actual letter that he wrote uh, shortly after he recovered from the beating that was used by uh, John, it was used by John Clark in a tract that uh, was given to the leadership of the Puritans in England that finally brought about some moderation in their, in their point of view about uh, other anybody that didn't, didn't agree with them. So I need to uh, give these out. Uh, I need a couple of folks to just hand uh, these out. Uh, Brother uh, Grissom, would you grab that side? And, and Ryan, I think I've got enough here for everybody to have one. Um, these are the actual words of, uh, of uh, Brother Holmes as he uh, was recovering from the beating. And uh, you'll see that. Uh, bring one more back to me here, Brother. Um, I gave them all out to you. <laughs> Thank you there, Brother Grissom. So I, I mentioned there what uh, he is charged with. And, and then um, as the whipping goes on, he's preaching the gospel to them there, and he's asked the Lord to help him to bear it, and he's astonished at the fact that the Spirit of God is, is causing it to be 
he feels no pain while it's going on, while it's happening uh, to him. And uh, he says at the end, when, when the um, administration of the beating is finished, he says there, you have struck me as with roses. <laughs> can you imagine that guy after he's worked up a great sweat and he can hardly swing the whip anymore? You've struck me as with roses. And moreover, although the Lord hath made it easy uh, to me, I pray, God, that it may not be laid to your charge. So what a remarkable uh, testimony. And this, uh, this testimony from history is well attested to because there was a huge crowd of witnesses there. There were two men there that stepped up and were so moved by Holmes' testimony that they took him by the hand. Both of them trusted Christ as Savior that day when they, heard, when they saw how God had intervened for Holmes and how it was a reality what he was preaching. Just for uh, uh, reaching out to him and trying to comfort him, both of them were sentenced to, uh, uh, with crimes and both of them were uh, given uh, the opportunity to pay a fine or be beaten as well. So it was, um, it was ongoing there. It was a situation that was ongoing. So you have uh, all these things um, uh, happening, th these kinds of things happening uh, in, those, in those years, those, uh, from 1650s when we first have Baptists introduced to the American colonies up until the 1700s, there's rather relentless persecutions going on as, as the church, uh, as Baptist churches are established and spread. Um, the, the churches that are um, being established, now they're generally going to be maybe two dozen people. You know, they're not large mega churches, anything like that. They're, they're churches all over the place, but they're small because the persecutions are rather severe and rather consistent. So they're going to be small churches, but they're spreading and they're spreading and they're spreading. Uh, and the persecution is going right along with them. By 1790, there's 38 independent Baptist churches in Rhode Island. And, and uh, they're really doing well there in Rhode Island. And there's many thousands of converts there in Rhode Island. And people are coming, Baptists are coming from England and then hearing about Rhode Island and going there as well. So the ranks are swelling there. But outside Rhode Island, the Baptist churches that spring up are more, much more heavily persecuted. And so they're, they're, com they're uh, coming about in all the other colonies in Massachusetts and Maine and uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, South Carolina, New York, and Delaware and Connecticut, Vermont, Maryland, New Hampshire, and Georgia, all of these uh, record Baptist congregations, numerous Baptist congregations in them before the 1700s. And so they're, they're growing, but they're growing under quite a, a deep persecution. In Virginia, uh, not long before the revolution took place, there were 40, there at one time, 44 Baptist preachers were jailed um, at once. And there were 44 different Baptist preachers in jail in a period of several years leading up to the Revolutionary War. And so uh, uh, certainly you can see the, the history of persecutions didn't end with, uh, you know, getting out of the Catholic-controlled countries or the, uh, the Episcopal, uh, the Church of England-controlled countries uh, or places where the Calvinists were dominant. The persecutions against Baptists didn't end there. It continued on into our country. But thank God for the truth of Acts 4.29. And uh, here the apostle is praying and says this, Now, Lord, 
Behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. I tell you, our Baptist forebearers um, lived by that. <laughs> they lived by that uh, rule. With all boldness they may speak thy word. Why wouldn't they shut up and just not have to be punished anymore? Well, because the truth is more important than our uh, bodily health and our bodily life. So thank the Lord for our heritage. Let's go ahead and uh, stop there. And, and uh, if you would remember the prayer request, I, let me make sure that I've given them all to you there. Uh, the Bechets, the Brother Hayes, um, Callie's travel, uh, Henry's um, cancer treatments. We pray that that would go well. And Julie uh, for her recuperation there too. And so if you remember these things in prayer. If you have other prayer requests and you want us to uh, pass those along, you can put on the prayer card that's there on the back of the visitor's card. You can write your prayer request out. And there's a box in the foyer that we check every week. And we do, staff does pray for those. And then we spread those uh, along, pass those along to others as well. So you can uh, avail yourself of that too for uh, prayer requests. Uh, if you uh, if you would do that, that that would uh, you'd know that some people would be praying for you. So let's go ahead and get down to our knees. I'll just call on a couple of men who have prayed before, uh, a couple of people who have prayed before publicly.